I learned how I grieve and that sounds a little bit silly, but I learned when I was feeling certain things that before I'd just be like, why am I having such a bad day? Why does this seem like this little tiny issue is a really big deal? And I was able to learn when that was grief and recognize that I was grieving. And when I was able to start doing that and face the grief, I started also being able to embrace the good stuff and embrace the happiness a little bit better. Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I have the honor of interviewing and allowing all of you listeners to get to know Autumn Tolley Jackson. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Uh, yay. <laughs> Who is the author of Boldly Into the Darkness, which I love this title. So it's Boldly Into the Darkness, Living with Loss, Growing with Grief, and Holding on to Happiness. If that title doesn't say everything about her, I don't know what else would. So this will definitely give us a big glimpse into what we're going to talk about today. She's also the founder of Growing with Grief, which is a website that has a whole bunch of grief support uh, links and information, and she'll share a little bit more about that. So again, welcome, Autumn, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. I am so excited that you reached out too. It's uh, I was telling Autumn, you're you're the first person that's reached out from having listened to a podcast to then want to be on the podcast. And so for all of you listeners, just know that if you're listening to this and you yourself have a story of grief and gratitude that you'd like to share and be of inspiration to others, please reach out. Uh, you the emails on the show notes below, uh, please reach out just like Autumn did. And again, I'm so grateful to you, Autumn, for reaching out. Well, thank you. I was just really pleased when I got your response that you'd be willing to talk to me on here. Oh, absolutely. It's always, it's always an honor and there's always so much growth, you know, from hearing other people's stories and everybody's journey is so unique. And I know that I myself learn from every single, you know, interview I have and from everybody's journey. And I know the listeners can relate to everybody in a different way, just like you did, like listening to a few of the episodes, you related to some of the episodes, even though the ones that called your attention weren't necessarily similar to your own stories, right? To your own story of grief, yet you could still relate to them. Yeah. A lot of them actually weren't, some of them had grief components, um, similar and a lot of them were very different, but it just, I find you can always find something in somebody else's story, um, yes. that either touches you or that you can pull from for your own life. So I've really Absolutely. enjoyed listening. You know, and, and one of the things too, it's not when we hear of somebody's grief journey, which by the way, for you listeners, this will be 
one that will string at your heart. If that's if that's the right say, saying, I'm not sure. String, pull at your string, heart strings. How heart do you say that saying? Heart string, pull, pull, at, pull your at your heart strings, I think is right. Okay, pull at your heart strings because there, there are several layers to Autumn's grief. But um, But at the same time, just like you said, like sometimes even if we haven't had a grief experience, uh, or everybody's had a grief experience, but I mean, even if the grief is not the same, there is a lot to learn in just life lessons, like you mentioned. So let's talk a little about you. So you live in Oregon at this moment. We were talking right before we started recording about the air quality and all that regarding the fires. Things are starting to get better. Yeah. I live in Eastern Oregon, so I'm a ways away from where the fires are. Um, but of course it's been such a traumatic few weeks for a lot of people Mm -hmm. in the state. So, um, they're starting to get those under control. People aren't losing houses quite as fast as they had been, which thank God. Gosh, Um, Like even just that aspect of grief, right. Of even the people that lose a home and, and just the, uh, even just the emotional component of seeing whole forests and animals, you know, oh my gosh, be, you know, being destroyed by the fire. It's just so hard. Yeah. It's been, it's been a very hard, um, end of September really for a lot of people around here, but I think people are learning how to deal with it. And what's really good to see is always the organizations and the private individuals that step up and volunteer or buy food or pay for hotel rooms or really just help each other out. So it's always Mm -hmm. good to see that bit that gives you that faith in humanity. Yes. The lending people really stretching out a hand. And and that happens, of course, in many aspects. And I'm sure you felt it in your own grief journey as well of people around you being there to support you in your process. So let's share a little about your story. So you um, were married to Joe. Tell us a little bit about Joe and your your life uh, prior to your first grief experience. Yeah. So Joe and I were married in 2009, and we started dating when we were pretty young. Uh, He was 19 and I was 20, and once we finished school, we got married. We moved out to Eastern Oregon, where he's from. Um, He's a ranch kid, a cowboy. He loves (laughs) dealing with just anything in nature, hunting, fishing, working with cows, working with his hands. Um, He was a pretty amazing person. Uh, Very active, very active, healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Active, healthy. He was a wildland firefighter. So in the summers, Mm. we of course didn't get to see each other quite as often, but he, um, since he was 18, he was a wildland firefighter in the summers. Once he finished college, he became an engineer. Um, but he also still did some firefighting on the side. So very active. And that, and you both worked in the same, you both worked in the same company for the same company, correct? Yeah. So we live in a really small town in rural Oregon. Um, actually it's one of the bigger towns, but our entire County has 7,000 people and the town has three to 4,000. So, um, there's a handful of industries that are better for, just, you know, the benefits and everything you get. We both worked at the same place here. Um, and we didn't necessarily work together, but we worked with the same people. We worked in the same office. 
And then at what, how, so you got married 2009 and then how far into your marriage did you uh, end up having your kids? Yeah. So we wanted to be married for a little while and we decided, well, we're going to have our kid in 2012 and I'm a planner and I know that sounds crazy to be like, oh. <laughs> Had you put it on the calendar the day that your child was going to be born? <laughs> not like, not quite that exact, but it's like, okay, well, the summers are really busy with ranching stuff, but if you're doing fire stuff, so we want him to be born in the winter and we planned it all out and everything worked perfectly. And in February of 2012, we had our first son, Cody. And so at that point we really started kind of settling down a little bit more and trying to learn how to be real adults with responsibilities. And then, and so, and then how did that change your job? Like, yeah, how did, so you had Cody, then you were able to take maternity leave at that point. Like, was it very flexible with your job at that time? Yeah. Yeah. So at that point I was able to take the full 12 weeks of maternity leave and I had some leave saved up. So most of it was paid which was way less stressful and Joe would help where he could. And he was able to take some leave and stay home with us for a while too. And um, we got to learn how to be parents together and really kind of embraced it. I have never seen somebody so baby crazy as he was. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. It's a, you get to know this whole other person, right? When they become, when you become a parent, you really get to know another side of your partner. Uh, that you wouldn't otherwise not know. <laughs> so, oh. uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just remember right after Cody was born, I was just looking in complete confusion on how to swaddle. And he's over there. Of course, he, he's an engineer with that sort of mind. So he's just like studying it, <laughs> asking the nurses to show him again. Show me again. Show me again. It's like, a, it's like origami. It's like an origami kind of thing. Like, okay, he's probably like, you know, you put this corner here, then you tuck it yeah. over there. Oh my exactly. gosh, no, the swaddle. I would buy like so many things that like would be like the perfect swaddling blanket, like things that already kind of had the Velcro in order to leave. My, but no, my kids were like yeah. Houdinis. They would both come out of that swaddle. <laughs> yeah, I was never able to do it. But luckily he really had it nailed down by the time we left the hospital. Oh, that's wonderful. And then how, then how many years later then was, um, Wade born? So we wanted to have our kids two years apart. And again, I'm a planner. Um, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, is, so that aspect <laughs> of you being a planner, Autumn, this is really interesting because then life really turned, turned, took, you know, took some, threw some curveballs at you. So this yeah. whole planning thing in life, this is, this is a big Aha, right now that I'm hearing here, this repetition of the planning. So this is interesting. Okay, I want to hear it all. Okay, so then you're a planner. So you wanted them to be two years apart, both be born in the spring. I'm, I'm yeah. joking. Exactly, <laughs> okay. though. It's like, that's how my mind worked. It's like, this is the best time to have a kid and we want them to be this far apart. And so we um, started trying for another kid in 2013. So that it'd be born in the early spring of 2013. 14. And mm -hmm. this was the first time where life really kind of threw me that curveball, And mm -hmm. we got pregnant easy. And then um, when we were about eight weeks, I had a miscarriage. Oh, wow. Okay. And I didn't hear, know about that in our, in our first conversation. Yeah. It, mm. it didn't really come up, but I had a miscarriage and that really kind of shocked me because I'd never dealt with anything really that I didn't feel like I had any control over. Um, 
And so we talked about, of course, the doctors, it happens a lot. One in four pregnancy or something like that Mm -hmm. has a miscarriage and it's not that uncommon and there's probably nothing wrong. You already have a healthy kid. And so we kind of rallied and we're like, okay, well, now we're just going to try to get pregnant and have another healthy baby. And we got pregnant again in the fall of 2013. And we went in for a, a dating ultrasound at... Oh, I think I was 12 weeks and we found out we were pregnant with twins and neither of them had heartbeats. So I had a second miscarriage. Wow. So my first pregnancy was a miscarriage. So I can relate to that aspect of loss. And it is the, it's such a heartbreaking experience to go through. Um, And of course, everybody's grief experiences differently. Okay, how about I rephrase that? It was a heartbreaking experience for us. And I know that other Mm -hmm. friends who've had miscarriages, their experiences maybe have been different. But um, you already also have names sometimes. You already have the idea, even if you've never met these beings, it's still, and in this case, so three, you have three three babies then um, at that point Mm -hmm. then, because this was two. Yeah. How did you guys deal as a couple with grief at that point then? Um, I really struggled because it was such an abstract loss. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. that makes sense, but for me, it was no, in my absolutely. body. Yeah, no, I, I totally, that's what I'm saying. It's a being that I didn't even know the gender of my miscarriage. I didn't even know. I wasn't yeah. that far. I was like eight weeks, like your first pregnancy, mm-hmm. like your, I mean, your first miscarriage. I didn't even know the gender. So the, but there was still so much pain. Um, it, it, you know, like just my soul just aching for, I mean, it was my, since it was my first miscarriage, sorry, my first pregnancy as well. There mm-hmm. was no other, uh, baby for me to kind of focus the attention to, which you can had a little bit with Cody, but it's still like, this is then the second time around for you. So how, yeah, how did, yeah. So the abstract, it, that abstractness of the grief, how did you handle it? <clears throat> I really struggled with it, partly because Joe was excited about us having a baby, but he hadn't felt the changes in his body. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he had plans and he was grieving that, but it was very different grief. And I hadn't had any real experience with grief. So I kept a lot of it to myself and I tried not to Mm -hmm. show it to him, but that meant a lot of nights I'd stay up crying while he was sleeping Mm -hmm. or I wouldn't sleep. Um, and I really just held it in. Nobody talks about it. I didn't know anybody who'd gone through it at that point. Turns out I actually know a lot of people who have gone through it and just oh, nobody talks about it. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody does. And so then you think you're like the only one. I totally can relate to that. Wow. So then when you started to share then with friends, they did it make you feel a little bit less... Um, mm, like as if something was wrong with you when you started to know that there was more common than not? Yeah, it did. I mean, it doesn't take away from the grief, but you realize that other people have also experienced it and it's not something to be ashamed of. Um, yeah, there was a lot of just confusion. Like I said, always having been a planner and this was the first time these miscarriages where my life really didn't go the way I had thought it would go. Mm-hmm. And so I was dealing with that loss of control and all these plans that we'd laid out, obviously now weren't going to happen. They weren't going to be two years apart and be the best of friends. And, um, I was grieving this future that existed only in my head and I didn't know what to do with any of those feelings. And so 
after a few weeks, I just kind of pushed them down and, well, I guess it happens and it's normal and I don't need to talk about it. And, um, I really just suppressed a lot of it. That is so, so normal for a lot of people to do that, especially when you don't have somebody else again to kind of talk about those emotions to that can completely relate. And I'm sure that Joe probably also felt that loss again, but he was also Mm -hmm. probably feeling just as confused and not knowing how to be able to completely verbalize those emotions either. Yeah. So at that point then, when did you guys then try, try again, um, to get pregnant? So at that point it took, we took a little time off. I, we just weren't feeling, feeling it. And so we, we waited about six months and then we got pregnant again, which I guess we're blessed with the ability to be able to get pregnant easily. Um, and this time, of course, the whole pregnancy, I was a stress case. Cause every time I didn't think it was moving enough or we'd go for an ultrasound, I just wait for something to be wrong. But luckily, um, we had a healthy boy Wade in January of 2015. And then, yeah, like even after that, I, I remember that pregnancy to my pregnancy after the miscarriage was exactly that way. Exactly what you're saying. The not knowing. I'm like, why should I even get excited? Like, should I even, you know, like without not knowing yeah. um, and the worrying, you know, component. So, yeah, I didn't breathe, I think, till the day that my first was like actually born. I was like, OK, now I can breathe. And now I'll just have sleepless nights and worry whether my child, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, those are their worries that come. But but in the aspect of the actual carrying of the baby, I can I, I, I know I can relate to that. So when he was born, then you have these two kids. And again, you're on maternity leave and then just take us into the journey of what what happened next. Yeah, so Wade was born on January 23rd, and we were just so happy. We had decided we just wanted the two kids. We didn't want to risk dealing with more miscarriages, and we had two healthy boys that we were blessed with, and um, we were just so happy the pregnancy was and the birth were both easy, so my recovery was easy, and I was doing what I needed to, and Joe was just in love with his kids. And I remember once um, I was breastfeeding. And so it seemed like I was always holding Wade because, you know, they have to eat every two hours. <laughs> and Joe was holding him once in between one of these periods. And I went over to pick him up and he glared at me and he goes, no, this is my baby. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, you get to have him all the time. And right now he is mine and you cannot take him. Uh, <laughs> So, that is so cute. And he was what, three years old at that point or two? How old was he? Three? Well, the, the, this was Wade at that point. And so Wade was like a week old at this point. Oh, he, oh okay. Okay. But who was holding Wade? Joe was. Oh, Joe. Okay. Okay. I thought, you know, I for a second, I thought it was like Cody holding Wade. So I was thinking, I'm like, because no. that sounds like my baby. That's what my sister <laughs> used to say about my brother when he was born, because she was four years older yeah. than he was. And so when he was born, he's like, no, it's my baby. Like she wouldn't, like she would call it her baby. So that's what yeah. I thought. But it was Joe saying no. that. Oh, that's her husband. It was so Joe saying that. <laughs> yep. And he was just so in love with them. And he'd give them baths and he'd do all the extra work so I didn't have to do anything. And he was just absolutely amazing. And we were all 
everything just felt right. It felt perfect. And our mm-hmm. lives were going how they were supposed to go. And we were happy. How um, you had planned. How you had planned. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't the same exact original plan, but of course you adjust right. and then it happened how yeah. it pla- was planned. Um, and Joe had been trying to get in shape. He wanted to go on a big hunting trip in August. And so he was doing some men's league basketball in the evenings. And on February 5th, he went to his basketball. And I knew when he came home from basketball, even though it was going to be late, he was going to go out for a jog and he wasn't going to come in the house because he didn't want to wake up the baby or disturb us. And so at about probably about nine 45, I heard his truck pull in and I knew he was home and I knew he was going for a jog and it got to be about 10 30 and I didn't feel right. I didn't, I didn't know what was wrong, but I didn't feel right. And I knew that he should be home pretty soon. Um, and I was sitting there feeding Wade And just something in my body was telling me that something was wrong. And so I finished feeding Wade and got him back to sleep. And it was about 1045 and I checked on Cody and I jumped in the car and I drove down our road where he would jog. And I saw him laying on the side of the road. And I don't know what I'd expected to find, but it definitely wasn't that. Just can't, I can't even fathom. You see, the other things I could fathom, this, because I had experienced similar, but this, I can't even fathom that, you know, finding and the feeling and the fact that you kept on feeling that intuitive notion, something, you know, telling you to that something was not okay. Yeah. And how did you, what did you do at that moment? You get out of the car you, and then did you put him in the car or did you call what did you do at that moment yeah so joe was 6'3 200 pounds um and so i couldn't have moved him into the car if i had wanted to right um but i stopped the car in the middle of the road and i went to check him and the whole time part of me saying he's just playing this really horrible joke on me um and i got to him and i tried to talk to him or get him to sit up and he didn't move at all. And so we were right in front of one of our neighbor's houses and this is almost 11 o'clock at night. And I just ran into their house screaming that Joe was on the side of the road and they needed to call 911. And as soon as I heard them acknowledge something, I ran back out to Joe um, and started CPR. And after a few minutes, I don't, I don't know how long in reality, But after a little while of doing CPR by myself, my neighbor came out and he started helping. So we could, we were doing it as a team and his wife had called 911 and was on the phone with them and they're sending an ambulance. And then she went to my house because at this point I had a three-year-old and a newborn in a house by themselves. And it was only a few hundred feet away, but, um, but still, yeah, it's still, so, uh, we worked on him until a sheriff came and then the sheriff relieved me. And then the ambulance came a few minutes later and they worked on him and worked on him. And at that point I started calling family and I'm like, I don't know what's happening. I know he's not breathing. His heart's not beating. I don't know what's happening. And I don't, I probably said that a million times. Um, And eventually Joe's brother got there and his dad got there and I have no idea how long the medics worked on him, but then they just, they'd stopped and the sheriff walked over 
And he didn't even have to tell me anything. I remember going, they stopped working on him. That's not good, is it? And he goes, no, we, we weren't able to bring him back. Even though it's been a few years since that, how does it like feel for you to still even just be reliving, having to share all the details? Because you've written a book about it, and now you're speaking about it. I'm sure you've said so many times. It's like so many times our grief, we feel like it's already gotten to a point that we're okay talking about something, and then all of a sudden emotions strike yeah. again. Um it is just so much I can't imagine as a mom of two young kids having to be now in that position. Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's easier to talk about or if it's just that I've decided I'm okay having those emotions that come up when I do talk about it. Oh, but, I, that is beautiful to say. Yeah, because you for so long also with your, with your miscarriages, you suppress mm -hmm. those emotions. And then here was one you could not suppress. Yeah. Here was I, something you could not. I couldn't pretend it away. <laughs> Trust me, I tried. It didn't work. Mm. Um, and it not just, uh, it just takes your breath away. And it takes, it felt like it took all the warmth in my world away. Mm. Um, we'd. Oh had so many plans and we had these kids and we had a newborn and this wasn't how it was supposed to go. <laughs> and even, even talking about it now, I sometimes still have this like level of disbelief that it's like, how did that even happen? How is this how life is supposed to be for me? And again, yeah, again, it was because it was not in your plans. That was not something you had planned for. Yeah. Not it's even. It's that yeah, the thought. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I not told even. told you I interrupt a lot. I told <laughs> you. I told you when we had our pre interview. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but no, he was 30 and I was 31 and we had two small kids. And this isn't how anybody's life is supposed to go. You're not supposed to find your husband died on the side of the road. And we did end up doing a full autopsy and looking at everything. And they have no idea what happened. They literally said something caused his heart to stop and we can rule it unknown natural causes. And yeah, it, it's like he was, he was healthy. I mean, he had just mm -hmm. come back from that, you know, a camp, what was it? A hunting trip or back? What was the so trip that he had? He was, well, he was preparing for a hunting trip, but he just oh, came back okay, from okay. playing basketball. Yeah, basketball and, to then jogging. Yeah. I mean, the only thing would be like overexertion, but it's like you're 30 30, you know, it's like, what would be overexerting at 30, right? You don't yeah. even think of that. Yeah. Wow. So then what did life look like then? You were here on maternity leave. Something you mentioned that was, was that at the time that you, yeah. when this happened, that, um, that you ended up feeling that sense of what humanity out there, how it, people around you supported you? It was. So this all happened. I don't know what time we made it back to the house, but it was probably close to midnight. So it happened in the middle of the night and living in a small rural community, immediately people knew about it. I mean, 
are the people who work in the ambulance are part of it, our sheriffs, they're all part of our community. And so word spread really fast. And by six o'clock the next morning, we had trays of breakfast were being dropped off for us. And mm. um, the garbage company dropped off an extra garbage can and the furniture store came and brought us a refrigerator to what? keep extra stuff in. I know. Wait, so, it's like, okay, because this is only 4,000 people in your town. So people yeah. knew everything. So like oh, yeah. the furniture store is dropping off in the garbage truck is, you know, garbage. Yeah. That is amazing. So it was this amazing support and some things you didn't even have to ask for. They're just like, here's this if you need it. If you don't, we'll come back in a while and get it. Um, and I was on maternity leave at the time. And being my second kid, I didn't have enough leave saved up to cover everything. But Joe and I were we figured we could, I could take some time off without pay. Uh, but now everything had changed. And so my boss I worked with um, told me that I'd qualify for a program with our work that's called Leave Share, which basically means that anybody in this company, which is a national company, could donate their unused sick leave to me. And um, within the first week that it was advertised that I was looking for leave, I had enough time donated to me to be able to take six months off paid. When you told me that, like, I still get chills when you told me that when we were having the conversation before this interview and then, oh my gosh, now I still get chills because we're so often so focused on humanities, inhumanity, <laughs> let mm -hmm. me put it that way. And to, to hear these beautiful stories of compassion and empathy, it's just like, oh, such a breath of fresh air. And it's just so beautiful to hear. Imagine six months that you didn't have to worry about, you know, you had plenty of things to worry, but you didn't have to worry about where, you know, your meals were going to come, you know, your paycheck was yeah. going to come from. And this is from strangers, just people that didn't even know you donating their own uh, yeah. time, their, you know, their pay, whatever. Their paid uh, sick, leave. Time, yeah. sick leave to you. That's beautiful. It, it was a passionate act. It was a huge gift because I was in no shape to work. I mean, I could have warmed a chair and that probably would have been the extent of it. And that's about the extent I did for those first few months after Joe died. Um, I was lucky enough to have a lot of good family and a lot of good community support. And my mom was able to take 12 weeks of her family family leave and it was all unpaid, but she was able to take 12 mm. weeks to stay in the she house with me and to help mm. me take care of things. Cause I wasn't functional. I was functional to the extent I absolutely had to be to plan his service and his burial and all that stuff. But, um, she really helped keep me on track with everything mm. and then slowly helped me relearn how to live in this new life that I never had wanted. Mm. You know, I'm thinking something here in your grief, and this is going to be a very personal question, so please don't answer if you don't feel comfortable, but in, in, the, in the grief component, like when you're grieving and nursing a newborn, did that affect your milk uh, pro production with the amount of sorrow and the fact of maybe lack of sleep and maybe nourishment for yourself? Did you notice any changes in that? Yeah. So I am a very good milk producer and, um, okay. I didn't notice a decrease in my ability to produce whatever milk Wade needed, but mm -hmm. 
But the okay. where I saw a difference and I saw it pretty quick was I started just dropping weight. And part of that was because I couldn't eat. I physically, I would eat something and it would physically give me a sharp pain in my stomach like somebody had stabbed me. And so I was virtually eating nothing, especially those first few days. And then I think my sister realized I could drink. So I started eating some smoothies, but um, from the time Wade was born, so this goes a little bit before Joe and includes all the baby and all those other, other things that account into it. But from the time Wade was born, within the next six or seven weeks, I'd lost about 65 or 70 pounds. Wow. And so is it, and that happened with Cody too? Um, no, not a, not as much. Um, I was always able to produce a lot of milk for him. And but in terms of, but not lo- losing the weight, like for example, after Cody I, was born, did you remember it being that drastic too? Um, after Cody, I was, I did lose a lot of the weight just from breastfeeding. And Mm -hmm. I think I was back to my pre-pregnancy weight after about a year. Um, With weight, I went about 10 pounds below that, maybe even a little bit more, but I went about 10 pounds below when I realized that I wasn't going to be able to keep feeding him Mm. because I wasn't able to feed myself. And at some point I had to take care of myself too. Absolutely. He was probably just, all his nourishment was coming just from your own body. Like, because if you yeah. weren't even able to eat yourself, like it was probably just draining. If you had not been eating, all his vitamins were coming just from you. Probably yeah. Because it was, it was just wow. coming from me. And we did have, and this might sound weird to some people, but there were some other people in our community who had been taking milk to a milk bank mm-hmm. over in Bend, the next biggest city. And she actually did donate some of that milk directly to us to start using for him in the transition period. Oh, that is, that is not weird because that's the reason you see, I asked a very personal yeah. question, but you see, the, the, I, don't, I ask the things that come up and that's why I, my interviews end up being very long sometimes because I'm just <laughs> this curious being and the things that come up in my head, either I'm like, maybe am I the only one thinking this? Or maybe the listeners may also be wondering what happens, you know, in all that sorrow, and so much going on in your life. Like, I wonder what happens in that, you know, in yeah. our anatomy, like in that aspect. Ana- of- anatomically. Thank you. I'm like, that's my, my Spanglish. Every, every single episode I have, there's something in which my, and it happens even when I'm doing the Spanish episodes too. I'm like, like there's words that I'm like, is that how I say it in Spanish? No, I don't like it. And then the same yeah. thing happens in English. <laughs> So um, thank you for that lesson, for my English lesson today. So yeah. um, so then at that moment, then you started, did you, you started receiving visitors some, and then please share when some of the people from your work came to visit and, and then your friend in common, you and, yeah. you and Joe shared in common. So people started visiting right away. And for the most part, I literally sat in Joe's recliner and I stared straight ahead. And sometimes I held Wade and sometimes I held Cody and mostly I just sat and I didn't deal with people, which um, nobody complained about it. So hopefully I didn't hurt anybody's feelings, but I just didn't have the energy to deal with people. And so my family talked to them and thanked them for their gifts. But I remember one person came into the house and he, his name was Kyle and he was a coworker of Joe and mine. Um, and Joe and him had 
they knew each other better because they talked a lot about hunting and fishing. Um, and he came in and he brought Cody a little toy tractor and he brought a bunch of paper towels and paper plates and those things that now that I had a house full of people, we actually needed. And I remember thinking that was really nice. And he came over and just said, you know, grief really sucks. And I lost my dad and I can, can't relate to this at all, but I can relate to grief a little bit. Um, and I'm always around if you need somebody to talk to. And then he goes, these other three people that we also work with came because they wanted to offer their condolences, but they didn't want to get out of the car because they didn't know what to say. <laughs> and when you shared that with me, I remember saying, I'm like, you had not told me that, that Kyle had had his dad, had, that his dad had passed away. You just said mm -hmm. he's the only one that came in and the rest stayed outside. And I'm like, had he had a grief experience in his life? Because it, feeling comfortable with the uncomfortable, not mm -hmm. again, not that we feel comfortable and nobody feels comfortable, but yeah. at least you know that you kind of have to show up and even the not knowing what to say is still enough. Even walking in, whether we know he knew what to say or not, mm -hmm. he brought something for the boys and his presence alone was, you know, enough for you to know that you were having that support. So you're like, yeah, his dad had died. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Because it's like, that's why he was okay going in the house, but the other people felt, you know, not knowing what yeah. to do. So that, that is so, so amazing. And that empathy that he had of, and knowing what it is you needed and the kids needed, um, in yeah. that moment. And so share a little bit about that friendship and that dynamic of how he was then your support during your grief experience? Yeah. So, um, the first month or five or six weeks, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> I wasn't doing much. Honestly, I still have blackouts. I, from that time period, I couldn't, mm. there's days and weeks where I don't know what I did other than just the little bit I was told to do. Um, and I didn't really have anybody to talk to. And so eventually I remembered that Kyle had said, yeah, he's up late. He's single. He doesn't sleep a whole lot. And if I needed to somebody just to kind of vent to about the grief, he was around. And so I started sending him messages and we just started talking and he didn't push me about my grief. He didn't necessarily ask me how I was doing. He asked questions about Joe and questions about the boys and he let me ask questions about him, which was really nice because it was nice not to have the focus on me. Mm. Um, and we were able to have a comfortable, just normal conversation that I felt like I'd completely lost the ability to have since Joe had died. And because yeah. there was a relatability there, there was a trust and a relatability and the fact that he knew your husband yeah. gave, gave that space to be able to talk about him. Exactly. And so eventually we stopped making it just messaging and texts and stuff. And um, we'd started hanging out a little bit and realizing, well, we actually have a lot in common and we can talk about this stuff. And I can make those jokes that are about death and loss that other people would probably cover their morbid. eyes at. <laughs> yeah. I think it's morbid, but yeah. You, we get we get a, a hall pass on that. Yeah, <laughs> we've experienced we've been getting a hall pass. <laughs> exactly, and I could vent my frustrations to him without people without him trying to fix it. He would just let me have my grief, and he let me share what my grief was with him, and it was so healing for me um, that 
out of nowhere, I realized that I was having a lot of the same feelings for him that I'd had for Joe. All of a sudden, he was the person that I wanted to talk to about grief or non-related grief stuff. And he was the person I wanted to share when the kids did something new or when Wade started to roll over and and stuff like that. And so we developed this relationship, which was always just friendly. And he was very careful to make sure that he was never making me feel like he was coming on to me or any of that stuff. And um, when I decided that maybe it was worthwhile to see if this could be more of a relationship than just a friendship. Um, he actually tried to talk me out of it. <laughs> He's like, it's really soon. It's only been about, Joe's only been gone for about five months. Are you sure this is what you want? I think I'm perfectly happy just being your friend for now. Um, and eventually I, I don't want to say I put my foot down because that sounds like I forced him into this relationship with me, but it's like, no, I know what I want. And you let me grieve Joe. And I assume if we're dating, you're still going to let me leave Joe. But I don't know that I'm willing to turn a blind eye to something that could potentially be really good. Wow. It's because it's like, it's okay. And that's the beauty of it. You could still be sorrowful. You could still feel sorrow and also feel joy. And it's like the fact that you were finding joy, um, it's even though you were still grieving, you know, it, it was okay. Joy and love, you know, even though you're still grieving, it was okay. Those, those, that those emotions could be intertwined. And the fact that you were able to recognize that so early on, you know, after his passing, that's, that's amazing and very brave too, because a lot of times, again, it's easy to even suppress those emotions. Sometimes it's, yeah. you know, we suppress even those happy emotions because there's a guilt component that sometimes comes oh. into play, right? So oh, even totally. those happy, right? Like those are yeah. easy to suppress. So the fact that you were able to acknowledge that you were having these feelings and emotions at, you know, five, five months yeah. um, after, you know, becoming a widow, that is very brave. Well, and I think really Joe helped me in, in some way. And so if we kind of rewind back to where I was saying that right after Wade was born and Joe was helping with everything. I remember once where I woke up from a nap or something because it was time to feed Wade and he came in and I gave him a hug and he go, and I go, I don't know how I do any of this without you. And normally he would give me some flippant answer about like, gee, I don't know either. Um, and this time he looked at me and he made sure he was looking in my eyes and he goes, if something happened to me, you'd be just fine. And you'd find a man who would love you and the boys like, like I do. Mm. Um, and so I really felt that I had his permission to try to grab onto that happiness. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't mean I didn't deal a lot with doubt, um, I w had a huge fear of public opinion, especially in a small town and a fear that if I started dating Kyle, people would think that I never really loved Joe. Mm. Um, and that was a whole, that was a whole bunch of stuff I had to unpack over the next few years. But it's so interesting that you say it. You say, even though I thought I thought about asking that, but I thought it'd be inappropriate for me to ask that of like how you felt about other people. If <laughs> that it does, yeah. so I'm so glad you brought that up because that's another thing too. Sometimes it's not only fear about our own emotions, but yes, about the rest of the world of what are they going to say? And the, you know, yeah. that aspect that holds us back from 
again, yeah. expressing either love or even the sorrow again with grief, like any of those things of like, what are people going to say if I'm still, mm-hmm. you know, mourning or, you know, grieving or what are people going to say if I do find love and, and are they going to think I am just like over like, you know, my, you know, that quote unquote over my grief or whatever. So that is, um, that is again, brave that you were still able to push through those doubts and, uh, and continue anyway. So then, the, <laughs> you know, continue anyway. So then the, the relationship changed and then. Dun, yeah. So dun, dun, then dun. we, <laughs> yeah, well, we started dating and of course we're still working through it. And, um, at one point I hit in September after Joe had died, we hit the stage where it was Joe and my wedding anniversary and I wanted to go to the coast, but I wanted Kyle to go with me. And there's something really confusing about being about dating somebody and wanting to tell your husband about your boyfriend. Um, But that's how I felt a lot. And so it made sense to me that Kyle could celebrate this anniversary with me, even though it wasn't mine and his. Um, And so we went to the coast and he took me out to dinner and he got me an anniversary card about, I don't, I have it somewhere, but I think he said something about how lucky Joe was to have those years with me. And he spent the entire night just asking me about Joe and Mai's relationship and things we did and um, different stories. And so that kind of really pushed me. It pushed a lot of doubts behind because any man who can sit there and spend a whole night comforting me and allowing me to grieve and allowing me to talk about the only other man I'd loved is a pretty impressive person. I said this to you that day when you were telling me this, I'm like, man, you really found an amazing human being. Yeah. Kyle, yeah. I mean, you've had two amazing human beings. In I know. Life, you know, it's like how amazing and fortunate, you know, you are. Yeah. You very. This much twice. <laughs> you know? <And> so, <laughs> so yeah, eventually we did get married. We got married in June of 2017 and we had a memorial table with a picture of Kyle's dad and people he had lost and a picture of Joe, <laughs> which I know people questioned that one, but it's like, well, he's a part of my story and we miss him. And in the wedding ceremony, um, we talked about my rings because I wear three rings on my left ring finger. And even to this day, I have the wedding band from Joe and I. And then I'd had a what I call a widow's ring, but just kind of a symbolic ring after Joe had died made. And I wore that next to my wedding ring. And on our wedding, the pastor explained that I wear three rings on my, or I will, after that day, wear three rings on my finger to tell my whole story. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we got married. And now there's, on our dining room wall, there's two wedding pictures of me marrying two different men, which is, I've seen people walk into the house when they don't know my story. And it's, they get very confused. <laughs> yeah, they probably think they're like, <laughs> That that series did you ever well a long time ago in Big Love on HBO or something yeah. like that like you know, the, <laughs> they're like wonder where the other husband is yeah <laughs> yeah exactly Aww. but and that a lot of that was Kyle because Cody and Wade needed to know their dad and they needed to see mm-hmm. pictures of their dad even though he was in heaven and he's a part of my story and Kyle's never threatened by that so um, Joe's all around in our house. 
That is just amazing. That's just amazing. And so now take us into then your relationship then changing and it will growing and so yeah. forth. And when you guys then decided to, or I don't know if you decided if it just <sighs> happened to, uh, to get pregnant. Well, if you go back to the whole, I'm a planner part. I thought that maybe at this point in your life with all these other things, <laughs> nope. <I'm> not planning. <laughs> I think it made me embrace the stuff I could control even more. And I think if it was an accident, I would have just completely lost my mind. But, um, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So when did you start yeah. planning? <laughs> so we talked a lot about it and um, Joe and I had only been planning on having the two boys and Kyle right off the, at the very beginning. Cause we talked, we did talk about this a little bit before we were married and he's like, you know, I'm fine. I don't need to have a biological kid. These are going to be my kids and it doesn't matter what blood or DNA says, and we don't need more. I know you've had trouble with miscarriages and I don't want to put you through any of that stuff, but I felt like it was one thing I could give him that I hadn't. I mean, I'd given Joe kids, but it was one thing I could do as his wife was give him a kid. And if he wanted one, um, I felt like we needed to at least talk about it. So we talked about it and we decided that, you know, what, let's try for a baby. We'll see what happens. If we have a miscarriage, we'll just call it quits and we won't deal with that anymore. And if it works out, We'll add a, another kid to the family and it did work out and everything was wonderful. And in the middle of July, 2018, we um, gave birth to a beautiful little girl named Riley Marie. And we were now a family of six in a really weird way. And the boys had a dad in heaven and a dad mm -hmm. on earth. And Cody and Wade and Riley and Kyle and I. So, mm. um, and it was amazing. Those days after she was born and those months after she was born, it was like, I had a life I never knew I had wanted. And I never thought I could be that happy again. And of course, everything with Kyle from meeting him and talking to him and getting married, each time one of those events happened, it was like, I didn't know I could be this happy. I didn't know I could be this happy. And so with Riley, it was just, all of a sudden, everything seemed to fit into place. And Cody and Wade absolutely adored her. And I don't know how many hours they spent bringing her their toys so she could play with them. And I'm like, she's she's two weeks old. I mean, she's probably not going to play with them yet. Um, but it was perfect. It was perfect that summer. So she was born in July? Yep, July? she was born in July. Okay. 2018, you said, yes? Two, yep, 2018. And then, um, at that moment, then you, you had, do you were able to take maternity leave again? How, were you, uh, how, again, like, is that three, six months, six months, six weeks, uh, or 12 weeks, 12 weeks, 12 weeks. 12 yep. weeks. Okay. 12 weeks. And then, and then, um, take us into a little bit then of what happened next. Yeah. So I took 12 weeks off and I worked a little bit here and there, but I didn't have the pressure to work and. Um, in the end of October, 2018, we all kind of got colds. We had sore throats. We had runny noses. Nobody was really sick, but we all kind of felt not great. And I noticed R Riley's nose started getting runny and it made sense that we all just had this cold and it was just a cold. 
I don't know how many times we said that. It's just a cold. No big deal. And um, over the weekend, she stopped. She wasn't nursing as well. She was still nursing. She was still having a normal number of wet diapers and stuff, but she just wasn't wasn't doing as good as she used to. And it seemed like she was starting to get a little dehydrated. So we took her in. And I know it was a Monday when the clinic opened. We took her in and we said, you know, we think she's getting a little dehydrated and she seems to, her head's a little bobbier than it normally is. Not too bad, but we wanted to bring her in just to just to be sure that everything was OK and get her hydrated. And the doctor said the same thing. He goes, yeah, it looks like it's just a cold, but we'll get an IV hooked up and get her rehydrated and hopefully she'll start nursing better again. So they sent us from the clinic, the family clinic over to the hospital so they could hook up an IV and. They weren't, they weren't able to. She had just amazing little chunky arms and legs, which are adorable and make it difficult for them to find veins. And then on top of that, she's three and a half months old and she had really little veins and they just couldn't get an IV in. And so they ended up admitting us to the hospital and the whole time we're like, yeah, it's just a little cold. When she gets rehydrated, we'll be out of here. And they put a nasogastric tube in her and every 15 minutes throughout the night, um, and into the next morning, Kyle and I would give her a little bit of formula through this tube. And she'd still smile at us, not quite as, didn't, she didn't have as much energy, but she'd still smile at us and look at us and wave at us and do all those things babies should do. And in the morning, she was rehydrated, but her head was still a little bit wobbly. And so the doctors were concerned with that and they wanted to test her for meningitis, um, which is a spinal tap. And so... We kind of said, hey, Riley, we'll see you in a little bit. We had to leave the room when they did the procedure, but they just did the procedure there in her room. And Kyle and I walked out of her room and um, the, from that room to the waiting room, it's probably 100 feet, maybe 200 feet. And right about the time we sat down, we heard the hospital page a, a code blue and they paged it for Riley's room. And so within seconds, a nurse was there and was pulling her back, us back to the hallway outside her room. And they go, I don't know what happened, but she coded and they're working on her now. And I think everybody that worked in a, our little small hospital was inside her room. There had to have been 30, 40 people there and a whole bunch of nurses and everybody outside, both trying to do what they could for us, but making sure they were there if, if the people in the room needed anything. And uh, they worked on her for 40 minutes. And eventually my, my doctor and Riley's doctor and another specialist, um, a pediatric doctor, came out and sat down with Kyle and I on the floor where we were going back and forth between just like complete disbelief and uncontrollable shaking and crying. And they go, we will work on her until you tell us to stop, but it doesn't look good. And when we were waiting, like the few seconds it took for that to sink in and Kyle and I knew that was probably coming. Um, and before we even had time to answer, we heard somebody in the other room say they'd gotten a heartbeat. Mm. And so we didn't have to figure out how we tell them to stop trying to save our daughter's life her heart started beating and they got her on a ventilator and they got her stabilized. And at that point I was life lighted with her over to 
Boise, which it's about a three hour drive, a pretty short plane ride, but it was the scariest and the longest plane ride of my life. And I knew she wasn't stabilizing very well. Um, the nurses who were working on her on the plane did a really good job of trying not to let me know if something was wrong. But between the miscarriages and Joe and other stuff, I've also learned that when they don't talk, it suggests that something's not quite right. Mm -hmm. So we got to Boise and I think it took them three or four hours just to get her stabilized. And I was able to watch her through a window in the pediatric ICU unit. Um, And they did eventually get her stabilized and she was in a coma. She wasn't aware at all. Um, And they took her for a a CT scan and they came back and they go, you know, we would have expected a lot more swelling. There's not the swelling there. We don't know if she may or may not have the brain damage at this point. We just have to wait and see what happens. And her heart was doing good and all of her other organs were doing good. She just wasn't, she was still on the ventilator and she just looked like she was, she looked like she was sleeping, but because of all of the trauma her little body had kind of gone through while they were trying to stabilize her. And um, I know there's medical terms, but she had retained so much fluid that when we were finally allowed to go in and look at her, she didn't look like our little girl. She was so swollen and her eyes, even though she wasn't awake, her eyelids were so swollen that her eye, they wouldn't cover her eyes. And Kyle and I had to step out of the room because we were so caught off guard. And we were told that we couldn't do anything to help. We just had to wait and see. So we were in the hospital and we were just kind of in this place where we couldn't actually do anything to help. And we couldn't help her. And it was a horrible place to be. And the doctors and the nurses and everybody were amazing. And again, with the kindness of strangers was a bunch of the nurses didn't like seeing her in such a white sterile area. And they went and they had blankets that other people had donated and stuffed animals. And they took the time out to give her baths and to wash her and to pick out blankets. They thought she might like if she, if she mm-hmm. woke up and add color into the room and um, they'd work on her and they'd talk to her just like she could hear them. And it was a pretty amazing thing to watch other people love your kid in a way that you do. And this is like, you guys would be sitting there in the, in the hospital room and the nurses would be Mm -hmm. doing all this while you guys were there. Um, probably also knowing that it's just like so draining probably emotionally for you guys that also adding all that extra loving on her, you know, uh, was needed because you also had then the boys back at the house. So yeah. How how was it like? What did you tell the boys? They were little. They were how old at that moment? So the boys were five and two at that point, five and a half and two and a half. And um, they had known Riley was sick when we went to the hospital originally, and we had Joe's brother and his wife were watching them. And when we had to go to Boise, because Kyle, of course, drove to Boise after I flew on the plane, and we just told him. When we were in the hospital, Riley got sicker and she has to go to a bigger hospital and the doctors and us were doing everything we can 
And that was kind of it. And we didn't want them to worry. And um, we also made the decision that we didn't want them to see her in the hospital unresponsive, especially when she was really swollen, which luckily her body was able to deal with those fluids eventually. And she began looking just like she was sleeping, but she was still hooked up to IVs and to a ventilator and machines. And we didn't want to give them that picture. And we also didn't want them to know what was going on until we could be there to tell them. And so my brother-in-law and his wife kind of tried to keep them going to school and on their regular schedule but not really doing anything extra outside the town because Kyle and I had put out on Facebook and everything else that we need prayers. I don't, we aren't going to tell you what's going on right now, but things do not look good and we need a miracle. And so people knew that something was going on Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to protect them from any of that, that sort of talk. And we talked to them every night and just say, they'd ask how Riley was doing. And we just say, they're they're trying their best but she is really sick and then something something that you mentioned in our conversation because again you didn't want to put it out there because wait wait cody was already school Mm -hmm. age at that time so mention what happened to wade at school how he heard somebody say something to him Yeah, so we didn't find out until months later, but during this period where we were over in Boise and the boys were going to to school, Cody, who was in kindergarten at that point, I believe, um, first grade, first grade, he might have been first grade, but he went to school and a kid came up to him and goes, I heard your sister died. Hmm. And at this point we were still in Boise and she was still, we were still doing what we could for her. Yeah. And, um, he didn't tell anybody about it. He, I don't know if he just trusted enough that if that was true, we'd tell him or. um, That is just, imagine a little five-year-old hearing that at school, like from a friend, like that is just, wow. Yeah. And I don't think it was done in any sort of malice. My guess is we live in a small town and somebody who is in the waiting room. Yeah. Somebody who is in the waiting room and put the pieces together or, even a doctor or a nurse who was talking and their kids overheard. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt bad that he had to carry that for a few days without telling anybody about it. Um, but while we were in the hospital, despite the CT scan looking pretty good, she still wasn't responsive at all. And so the doctor came in and told us that, um, we were going to, that they thought she was brain dead and we needed to verify that. And so they hooked her up to an EEG because they just, they wanted to see if there was any brain thing, any brain activity. And Mm -hmm. she did, she was on a EEG and they hooked a camera up just to see if there was any movements. And they did that for 24 hours and we just waited and um, she had absolutely no activity, nothing that could even you could even try to convince yourself was activity. And so then they started talking about the process of declaring her brain dead. And um, at that point, Kyle and I kind of looked at each other and it was just this unspoken thing. And we both turned toward the doctor and we go, so what about organ donation? Mm. Um, 
And I knew we both had it, like our licenses both say we're both organ donors, but we never really talked about it. It's always kind of been this, this thing that exists that we aren't involved in, but we both had the thought that it is so impossible to lose your own kid. And if she could be a donor and save some other lives, then we knew we wanted to do that. just so beautiful because the the fact that amidst your pain your own pain as a family that you were still able to have again that empathy and compassion towards other parents that were probably going through similar things and that you were already thinking of a way of healing somebody else's pain in in some way in the little in the little way that is just such a beautiful act of selflessness in such a moment of so much pain and um it's just so beautiful that you guys were able to have that conversation and so at what point do they uh, do they have to wait how does it work with um with that then if you ask about organ donation they keep her connected until there are donors there that are willing yeah. to receive is that what happens is that that process then that, that so happens next the whole process is really interesting but basically at that point she hadn't been declared brain dead but we were pretty sure like 99.9999 percent sure that's where it was going and so once we mentioned that the doctor called the organ procurement organization and they sent a team over and that team um, basically started doing blood tests and pulling all these different tests because for each organ she was able to donate, which in her case was just her, um, her heart, her liver, and her kidneys. Um, they would have to find matches. And they actually told us in our first meeting, they go, well, she's a positive, which isn't a super common blood type. So there's a chance there won't be anybody who needs it. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you've told somewhere, you guys have told some person who needs a transplant that because they have are a positive right right there's that they wouldn't not be able as easy to get one right yeah so um meanwhile the doctors started doing the brain dead test which they do run through two sets of things and we didn't see it they asked us to step out of the room for that part um and the first test found that she was brain dead and they said because we have the eeg we can either declare her now or we can wait 24 hours, which is standard protocol for adults when you have no other information. And we said, you know, we want to give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe a miracle will happen. And so they ran that other test. And after that second test, they declared her brain dead. And at that point, it was really interesting because the organ procurement organization actually takes over all of her care. So we were still in the ICU but they brought in their own nurses and everything. And it was a lot of testing and they hadn't dealt with organ procurement from such a small baby before. And so um, there were some instances where in they came in with like a hospital. You yeah. Mean in in that, that particular hospital. Uh-huh. This particular team hadn't. And okay, so there were some okay. things where they're just trying to follow their protocol and they bring in like a giant Ziploc bag full of test tubes that they need for blood. Right, and it's like, baby. well, you're going to, drainer at that point. So you guys are going to need to figure out something else. But so they start doing that and they work 24 seven. So they had some, but they work 24 hour shifts. And so not the nurses, but um, the other members of the team that were trying to find matches. And it's so 
it's not as easy as you just pull up this list and, oh, there's somebody with the same blood type. They have to test different things. And then we also had to, um, we had the point that we didn't know what had happened. She had, her heart had just stopped. We didn't know what the cause of it was. And so they were able to track down donors for all three of those organs. Um, and because her heart had stopped and she did have to be worked on, they were concerned about damage to that. And so they took a lot of mm-hmm. echocardiograms and different tests on her heart, which just each time they did one, it showed it being better and better functioning. And the whole process took probably 48 hours, maybe closer to 72 hours before they found matches. And then each match, we don't know where all the matches were, but they're within a certain region. But each organ has its own team. And that mm. team flies to the hospital um, to get the organ. And then they fly to their hospital with it and put it in the recipient. Mm-hmm. I've and watched so, Grey's Anatomy a lot of times. And <laughs> yeah. I know that they do that. That part I'm of like, it was that, accurate. That part is accurate. I know that somebody that's a doctor watching those, you know, doctor shows probably mm-hmm. says like, no, that's not it. But like, at least that part, I remember a lot of those things happening like that. Now, at what point then did they realize? Because here at this point, you still didn't even know her cause yet, yeah. you said. So yep. then at what point then did they found, find out the cause of her of her death? Yeah. So once we got into Idaho, um, they did test her for meningitis and that was negative and they ran tests mm-hmm. for everything else that they could think of and everything just com- kept coming back negative. Um, and we had a pediatric internalist maybe is what they're called um, the one that you she, had seen the one that you had seen at yeah. the other hospital uh, yep. before you left Oregon yep he was the one who was getting ready to do the spinal tap on her when she coded mm-hmm. and he just couldn't figure out what had gone on and eventually he had the idea that she needed to be tested for infant botulism um and so he was able to convince the doctors in Boise to test her for that and it it takes two weeks for that to be verified and so the whole time we were in the hospital we didn't know and about I think it was even longer than that I think it was more than two weeks after she passed away Um, we found out that she did she did in fact and so but yeah at the time we didn't know so then so that's the reason they had to test each organ because without knowing the cause they didn't know which organs would be viable no not quite No, No, so they had to test each organ because to make sure it'll match the recipient, there are a whole bunch of other factors other than just blood type that have to match. And I do not know what those are, but I know like they've got, (laughs) and in that moment, that's not even like, you're just there. I am. It's like, again, that's not even, you're just kind of present as everybody here is around you and your little baby here. I'm like, imagining all these people with all these chips. I can't, oh my gosh, it's yeah. just uh, so overwhelming. Um, yeah. Thank God you had each other, you and Kyle to support each other during this and seeing your child go through this. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about a conversation you guys had um, while you were in that waiting game of, and I hate, hate mm-hmm. to call the word game, but in that waiting period, yeah. um, would you mind sharing a little bit with the listeners of that kind of yeah conversation so you had? Mm-hmm. The hospital there was really good and they actually had some rooms that they set aside just for families of kids who were in 
the pediatric intensive care unit. And so they assigned one to Kyle and I, um, and we 99% of the time, barring a few times where we just needed to walk around and where we had to go to the bathroom, we were in that room with Riley. Um, but we did have a lot of other family there. We had my family, my parents and my sister and Kyle's brother and Joe's parents, Joe's mom. And we had a lot of family with us. And so when we'd go for those walks or we'd go, and if we did take a few minutes to go try to lay down in that room, um, somebody was always with Riley and talking to her and reading to her or sitting in there with her. And one of those times where I think it was when we had, were already working with the organ procurement for the donation and we knew that we weren't going home with her. Um, and we were laying in the room, not sleeping, because I don't think we ever did sleep in that room. We were just, mm. you're so exhausted, and yet sleep seems like the mm. hardest thing to the do. The thing that you could do, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we were laying in there, and we were just kind of crying out to each other a little bit, just how do we do this? How do we leave this hospital without her? How do we survive survive this loss? And that led into a conversation about how we need to make sure we grieve, grieve it together um, and acknowledgement that we aren't going to grieve the same way, but we need to make sure that we grieve together and we don't pull away from each other because we'd both seen the statistics that show that when a couple loses a child, oftentimes the marriage follows and we didn't want to that to happen to us. We needed each other. And so we, we made a point in that hospital room before she was even fully declared brain dead that we were going to go through this together and we weren't going to cry in the shower. We weren't going to hide our tears from each other. We were going to grieve with each other as much as we possibly could. That is just... That is just so beautiful because again, again, I keep on saying beautiful, but every act that you guys did, all these actions, again, thinking, forward thinking, a lot of forward thinking, you know, like, which is just so hard to do in those moments of so much pain. But the fact that you guys kind of thought, okay, this may happen now, let's protect our marriage. So let's make sure that we acknowledge our grief and, and make sure to to grieve together and not keep it down, partly because you both had already experienced grief, right? Mm -hmm. So you already knew that experience of what it was to grieve alone in a certain period of your lives. Mm -hmm. And you uh, fortunately had him to be able to grieve alongside with, at, you know, eventually, you know, in your, in your life. But um, again, it's just uh, amazing the type, again, brave, brave is the kind, kind of word that brave conversations you guys had throughout yeah. all these journeys of grief. And I, it's interesting because I, I can hear you say that. And yet thinking back at the time and we were just trying to figure out how to survive, like it didn't seem like we were doing anything brave or crazy. It was just like, how do we survive? And I think we both knew that we just needed each other to survive. Hmm. Um, that's, and just, so, that's just amazing. So then Take us then the date. She, so she went in October. November. Was November. It? Well, we first went into the hospital. I think it was either October 29th or 30th. Um, okay. And after she was matched to her recipients and they scheduled all the, all the teams to fly in to Boise. Um, we, we actually got a holder. They made, set up a chair so we could hold her 
at about, it was about three o'clock in the morning on November 4th and we held her and we said our goodbyes and our family that was still with us said their goodbyes and then they put her in her little cart crib thing and went out to the hallway and at four o'clock in the morning in this hospital I think everybody who worked there who was able to was lined up against the wall and they did a they call it a walk of honor um, that they do for organ donors that are going down to surgery and so we walked through this and we didn't want people clapping or anything um, because it's four o'clock in the morning and there's still other patients but they had bubbles and they blew bubbles for her to go through and Kyle and I went in the elevator down and got off the elevator and there was a red line and we stopped at that red line and she kept going. And so at about five o'clock on November 4th, um, she went and made her donations and Kyle and I started driving home. And so the first thing we did when we got home was call my brother-in-law and um, we had already told them what what was going on, and they literally just walked the kids into the house and left. And the first thing out of Cody's mouth was, where's Riley? How's Riley? And at that point, we had them come and sit with us on the couch. And we had to tell them that she had died. And we tried to use very specific words because we didn't want them to be confused. And we said, she died. And she's not going to come home ever again. And she's in heaven with your daddy, your daddy Joe in heaven. And I have no idea how long we sat on that crowd couch, just all of us huddled together, bawling. That image is just so much, and I'll give you a few a few minutes here. I, um. I know you you had mentioned prior when we had talked about how Wade had, because Cody was just a newborn when Joe died, and how Wade never really um, necessarily mentioned too much of the grief component when his dad had mm -hmm. died. Um, and that was different this time around because yeah. he was... A, older um so when you when you have a minute if you want to share a little bit about that but I do want to also for you to share and, and you can sh share this in any order that you want um about Riley's burial and also about what Kyle said regarding um regarding Joe and Riley as well yeah um and again, so when, the time you need, Autumn, I just appreciate you so much for going through all this. And I know it's not easy to have to relive the emotions mm -hmm. um, in order to help somebody else that may be going through something like this and hearing it. But at the same time, I know that you know that it's also a part of our healing journey, too, to share. So of our own grief journey. So I appreciate you so much for doing this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So going back when we were still in the hospital with Riley at the point that Kyle and I had decided that we wanted to donate her organs 
that was basically the time where uh, we knew she wasn't coming back for sure. And so we went into the family waiting room, which, like I said, was filled with a lot of our family. And Joe's mom and her husband were there. And um, we were telling them what we had decided and what was happening. And Kyle goes, and he looked specifically at Joe's mom and goes, I'm just happy to know that, well, I won't be able to take care of her down here. She'll have a dad in heaven who will watch over her. And um, she'll be up there with Joe and she won't be alone. And so that really, it's such a sad thought and such a beautiful thought all at the same time. Um, because nobody wants them to be up there. We, we want them to be here with us. But knowing that they were together brought a little bit of comfort to us. And so... When we came back and we were trying to figure out where we were going to bury Riley, um, the only place that made sense was next to Joe. And Joe's family owns a ranch outside of town. And when he was buried, we were able to designate a cemetery on their property and bury him out at the ranch, which was his favorite place in the world. And so um, after we came back, we went to them. And we asked if we could bury Riley, who's absolutely no blood relation to them, if we could bury her next to Joe. And and I think they looked a little offended at me that I'd even have to ask, because as far as they were concerned, she was one of their grandkids, too. And so um, we, we buried her there next to Joe in the little cemetery out at the ranch. So whenever we go out there, they're there together. And um, Yeah. This is the second time I'm so, hearing all this and I'm still so moved because yeah. it is just so heartwarming. It's just, it's just like imagery again and the, the purity of heart of, of uh, Kyle saying that to Joe's mom, you know, that her son, you know, is like here he is, his daughter is, you know, about, you know, about to die because at that moment you mm -hmm. that had not and then talking to another a mother who already had had her son die sharing that now her son would be the caretaker of his, it's just like that is just like so uh, beautiful because I'm sure that that also brought Joe's mom so much comfort too to hear that that you know that also, now her son was not going to be alone, quote unquote, because again, however, yeah. we want to, we, we don't have an, a clue really. <laughs> we only have ideas yeah. of what it is, you know, and perceptions and faith and, and so forth, depending on our own beliefs of what happens. But that is just so beautiful. And now, yeah. with Wade's um, grief, then this time around with, after his with Cody. Sister, Cody, sorry. Yeah. Cody, yes, yeah, sorry. Cody's the oldest. I got yep. confused. Cody's grief now after, because the, then, yeah, Wade was only two then when his sister yep. died. So how how was it for him this time? Yeah, so when process? Cody was almost three when Joe had died, and it was very strange because he went from this little toddler who was 
constantly asking where his dad was, whether he was at work or whether he was gone for a few nights doing fire or traveling or hunting. He was always wanting to know where his dad was. And from the morning he woke up after Joe had died, he never once asked for Joe again. Even before we told him that Joe had died, he never asked for him. And we always found that really strange. And afterwards, he never really cried for him. I don't remember him ever crying, but he'd say things very matter-of-factly. Like, we'd drive past a store that, like an auto parts store that Joe used to take him to, and he'd go, that was my dad's store, but my dad's dead, so it's your store now. Just not with any sadness. I think he did it about Joe's lunchbox. That was my dad's lunchbox, but since he's dead, it's your lunchbox now. And it was... One of those things that just like sticks a dagger in your heart. Especially from a three-year-old saying that, yeah, a little, little voice saying that, but you had to also acknowledge that that was his way of expressing it. Yeah. And so it wasn't how I could understand because I was definitely not grieving in that matter of fact way, but that's what was working for him. Um, But once when Riley died, he was much more emotional about it and he cried and he still cries um, about it pretty regularly, but he had, it really affected his confidence and his sense of belonging with our family. Um, I think he felt that he should have been the one to die and not her. And so that played out in different ways through school and through sports. And he'd say things just like that. He'd say, I should have died instead of Riley, or I'm not good at anything. You should just kill me, or I don't deserve this. And that would be his response with things as simple as, hey, Cody, did you remember to brush your teeth? And he'd say no, and then go off on these things. And for whatever reason, losing her really affected him. And it really, really affected his confidence. And he'd start doing things like bending his fingers back so they'd hurt or hitting his head on on a wall and doing things that were hard. And of course our first instinct when he says, I wish you'd just kill me. I want to die. Um, is no, you don't say that. <laughs> you don't right. say that. I, yeah. But then and, at the same time, then going back to how you reacted when he'd say, well, he's, de-, you know, that matter of factly, then you kind of wonder if this is his way of kind of expressing he's hurting. Yeah. Right. Then it's kind of like, and, how do you honor that? But at the same time, make sure he knows that that's not the way to express it. Right. How, yeah. So what would you guys say? Well, so at first, the first time he ever said anything like that, we were in the car and my first instinct is what came out of my mouth is like, you don't talk like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm being very selfish in that moment because I'm thinking I've lost Joe. I've lost Riley. I've had these other losses. You don't talk like that. I can't even consider right. losing you. Um. And then by the time I got home, I sat down with him and Kyle and I sat down and we talked about it a little bit. We go, that's not how that works. If he's feeling that he needs to be able to talk to us about it mm-hmm. because you hear a lot that it's, it's that bottling up of those emotions, which lead people to do self-harming activities. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to be a safe place for him, which meant we couldn't be judgmental of him having those feelings. And so even now he's gotten a little bit older. He's two years older now, just about. And uh, he can speak better, but when I can tell he's really upset, he still starts it off with things like, I know you're not going to want to hear it. Mm. It's like, no, I don't want to hear it, but that's not because 
-hmm. I don't want to hear it. It's because it hurts me that that's how you feel. And I want to make you understand what you are, how much we value you and what you mean to us Mm -hmm. and that you weren't responsible for Riley. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I mean, even still it's a struggle with him. And I assume as we grow older, it'll continue to be a struggle. The, the, at that time too, like when Joe passed, there was no grief. We, because you had, live in a small town, there was no grief support that you could go to yourself. Um, so, and then there was nothing really for the kids, but you, there was, mm-hmm. was the newborn. You didn't need at that moment, of course, because yeah. you would take a newborn. Um, then how had that changed by the time Riley died? You know, was there yeah. more support? Did you have yeah, because we were talking mm-hmm. about the Dougie, Dougie Center yeah. out in Portland, Oregon, which is one of the grief uh, organizations, especially for children, you know, families with children that yeah. support uh, grieving children. And um, but that's that was far for you too. So mm-hmm. what what um, what did you guys do in terms of that support? So after Joe had died, I struggled to find support. There was a hospice group, but I didn't feel like they could relate to a 31-year-old widow with two Mm -hmm. small kids. Um, And I just couldn't find anything. And so eventually, through a bunch of internet searches, I did find an organization called Soaring Spirits International, which is all about promoting hope and learning how to live after you become a widow or a widower. And... um, it wasn't so much like a support group where you sit around in a circle and talk. It was a support group in the sense that let's go to dinner and let's, we can talk about it or we can not talk about it. And here's some helpful tools in dealing with your emotions. And so um, I really enjoyed that organization. They have something called Camp Widow, which I still think is a horrible name, but basically it's a weekend retreat at a fancy hotel. I went to the one that was in San Diego Um, that has workshops and you're surrounded by 300 other widowed people, a lot of them who were my age. And I really got a lot of support there. And it's, it's kind of one of the times where I really started to work on, okay, what is my grief and how am I handling it? And what should I be doing to handle it better? Um, I liked their, the feel of that organization so much that they also have regional groups where people can just meet for dinner or for activities. And so I started one here in Eastern Oregon. So the soaring, the soaring spirits. Yeah. Of the soaring spirits. So it's called a soaring spirits, regional Eastern Oregon regional group. Um, And basically I just started meeting about once a month, sometimes every other month, depending on how busy the schedule is with four or five other widowed women in Burns. Um, and kind of just started our own little support group. You and created, that, you saw a need and you, you had a need, you created yeah. a, what you needed at that moment. And then how about when Riley then yeah. passed away, then is there support then for bereaved parents at that time? So there wasn't specifically what I found was I got a lot of support from the widowed community mm-hmm. um, for losing a child. And some of them had lost children also especially like with accidents and stuff. Sometimes they lost multiple of multiple family members. And so I was able to find people I really could connect with through that organization also. Um, And then the only, the thing I really 
found that was helpful locally was I did, we did have a pediatric therapist that was able to talk to Cody, if nothing else. So he just had a safe place to vent because he obviously understood that his hard emotions were also hard for us to hear. Mm-hmm. And so um, we did start having him see a, a therapist and they did some play therapy and um, I found the Dougie Center and while we never had to go over there and make a trip and utilize those resources in person. They had so many resources online that we were able to to look at and to read and try to figure out how to apply to managing Cody and Wade's grief. And that's the thing. A lot of times, like, we don't know that there's all these resources out there until we need them, right, sometimes. And mm-hmm. sometimes we don't find out about it till way later. Like, I really did not know that there was so much support out there until I myself now, you know, participate in a in an organization that's similar to the Dougie Center but here in in the Dallas area and um it is just amazing that that there's all these resources there to support and of course depending on the towns you live in if it's too small or not then there might not be that support but like you said there is all there was a lot of online support even on that website that you could use for for free to help you help your children navigate their their grief and um that is just so important now tell us a little bit now this just kind of curve curve it a little bit as we're ending this conversation into all these um that we talk about the grief gratitude the gray in between we've talked a lot of course of that aspect mm-hmm. all of these grief moments and this hardship and the, the struggles now that you saw, you were able to experience jo- joy, jo- I was going to say Joe after Joe, my tongue twister here, after Joe's passing, you're able to experience joy again and find love again when you met Kyle and feeling again, you, you was talked about like you never knew that you could feel so happy again when even Riley was born and, and all this joy. And then suddenly now again, life throws you a curveball and you're experiencing all this pain and again having to live with a life that you did not plan um how have you kind of been able to navigate your grief now those groups that you've organized that you've created or become you know um head of the chapter of what would mm-hmm. you call that when you become the head of a chapter of those organizations the one that you be I'm a region- spirits regional yeah I'm a regional group leader. Okay, a, a regional group so, leader. And then then you wrote a yeah. book. So take us into this journey of in this grief process, all these aspects of the tools that you've used yourself and now the light at the end or within the tunnel, the light within the tunnel, yeah. the little bit of the, because sometimes it's not just at the end. There's It doesn't really end, yeah. right? Grief. So. Yeah, I, I think I knew I needed more right after Joe had died. I didn't know how to deal with that at all. And I knew I wasn't dealing with it well, if at all. And so finding resources were really, it was really important to me. But I don't know if I was just really bad at searching the internet or I just wasn't doing it right because I was in such a dense fog of grief that it took me a long time to find some of those resources online. And so I was able to find some books and I always liked reading books. Um, And that's when I really started connecting to 
how beneficial it can be to hear other people's stories, Mm -hmm. especially after it's been a few years from their loss, because you can see where they are in their lives now. And you can see that there is a life out there. It may not be the life you had planned, but there's a life out there and it can be amazing, even with those sad points in it. Um, And so between reading the stories and soaring spirits, and I did end up finding a a coach that really helped me work through some of my grief. And I learned how I grieve. And that sounds a little bit silly, but I learned when I was feeling certain things that before I'd just be like, why am I having such a bad day? Why does this seem like this little tiny issue is a really big deal? And I was able to learn when that was grief and recognize that I was grieving. And when I was able to start doing that, and face the grief, I started also being able to embrace the good stuff and embrace the happiness a little bit better. And a lot of that I learned after Joe and before we lost Riley. And so while I don't think it made losing Riley any easier, I think understanding grief more and the process that I personally have gone through, um, I think it really helped me navigate my grief better. And wanting to provide some of the things I'd learned about my grief and wanting to share with others my story and be able to tell them that my story has some really, really horrific parts in it. But those parts are really small parts compared to all the wonderful in between. Mm. Um, And so I, I wanted to be able to kind of show that if you can embrace the good stuff in your life and still honor the people you've lost and recognize your grief and let yourself grieve when you need to, that you can still have a full and happy and amazing life. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book and, and with the website growing with grief, which literally just has a list of podcasts and a list of organizations and a list of books and blogs with links So somebody who's in my position right after Joe had died, where I'm looking for support and can't find it, can go to one website and have a lot of different options so they can try to find something that might work for them and not feel quite so alone in it. Oh, not so lost, right? Like you already feel lost in life already. And then you're also lost on the internet trying to find the resources. So I'll make sure to add that on the show notes of that website, because again, that will save people a few steps in that in that process to be able to go there and see all these different resources that you were able to find yourself and use yourself in these different moments in your life in which you needed the grief support um and then your book can you tell a little bit people again say the title one more time because i said at the beginning say, say share the title again and how people can can find it and then again i'll add all that on the show notes but you can share a little bit Yeah, the title is called Boldly Into the Darkness, Living with Loss, Growing with Grief, and Holding on to Happiness. And it's a memoir, but as the title kind of recommends or suggests, it's really about going in to your grief. Go into that darkness so you can come out of it and embrace what you have. And it was just officially launched on October 1st. And it's so it's officially available for everybody wherever you buy your books. So if it's not in your local bookstore, they can order it. But of course, it's also available on Amazon too. So 
Wonderful. So wonderful. Thank you again so much. And I know this was a lot emotionally and even for the listeners having, you know, to hear all this, but at the same time, so many, so many amazing, uh, I always call them nuggets. I haven't found another word. I keep on jewels. I should find another word for nuggets of knowledge and of wisdom and of hope too, that you share in your, in your journey. So thank you so much, Autumn, once again, for opening up your soul to share these very candid and honest moments in your life and painful moments in your life to be able to shed some light and hope to the listeners and to myself as well. So thank you. Well, thank you for letting me be on here and try to do that. Really the book and the website and everything else is so hopefully I can help some other people. Um, I appreciate everything you do because you're one of those support services, I guess. <laughs> I think we all we all share in the way we can. I actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna end with this funny little an- anecdote, and if it's okay with you, Autumn, when you when Autumn reached out to me, she wrote me an email, and it was a thorough, very, very you could know she's a writer because it was thorough, it was to the point, and then I respond with, "Yay, it is so great! I would love to get to talk to you, like something like that," and then. And when, when we talked, I was like, by the way, I wasn't trying, as you noticed in the email exchange, I'm not a writer, I'm a talker. <laughs> the world needs talkers too. So that's like, that's how I have a podcast and not a blog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know your strengths. <laughs> yes. I just didn't want to dismiss the fact that I'm like, here you are, like writing on this. And then I'm like, oh, I'd love to connect. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we have to, knowing our strengths and also embracing those and using those strengths in our life also help us, you know, with helping others too, when we know that, because each of us, sometimes when we're trying to serve others in a way that's not our strength, then we end up finding a lot of blocks, right? And so when we're serving in our strengths, uh, things just kind of come a little bit uh, easier and just flow, right? We kind of get into that flow. So I'm excited to be able to read your book as well. And I know the audience will too. So thank you once again, Autumn. Great. Thank you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.